The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. We are live, and this is our Clubland Q&A around the planet, 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time, that's 6 p.m. in Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland, and beyond the Americas, 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Paris, uh, where Monsieur Macron is uh, forbidding outdoor gatherings for non-virological reasons now. It's funny, isn't it? It's almost like it was a pilot plan uh, for more general application. Uh, it's midnight in Moscow. It's half past one in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 2.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, uh, 5 a.m. Singapore, Honkers, Perth. I wonder if I'll ever see Perth again. I find it a wild and intoxicating town, and not just because of Julie Bishop. But I wonder if I'll ever get to see it again. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, and a far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri for our listeners across the Pacific. 50 years ago, June 17th, 1972, Frank Wills, a security guard at a rather ugly building in Washington, D.C., was doing his rounds that night, noticed tape on the latches of some of the doors leading from the parking garage. Uh, The tape had the effect of allowing the doors to close, but without locking. So they appeared closed, they appeared locked, but they were actually open. Uh, So Frank Wills removed the tape, thinking nothing of it. And on his next round, he saw that the tape had been replaced on the locks yet again. And so he called 911. The police arrived and arrested five men. And so began Watergate. Seems like a lost world now. Almost a uh, an almost quaint scandal from a lost America, doesn't it? Uh, that's uh, that's the way it was 50 years ago. 50 years on, we're far, we have insurrections, apparently. Uh, they're investigating them interminably. It's January 6th, now and forever, according to the Democrat Party. Uh, but when Ted Cruz asks the FBI about the federal agents involved that day as agent provocateur. Answer comes there, none. Okay, let's get to your questions. Kelton says, Hello, Mark. Late in 2015, a disturbing headline emerged from the United States, the suicide epidemic among middle-aged white males. Nowadays, we have sudden adult death syndrome. 
and more than just the unfashionable middle-aged white men are dying. What similarities and differences do you see between these two stories? Excluding unvaccinated illegal immigrants, is everybody within an alleged first world nation becoming the dying white male of 2015? Stories like these have ominous implications. And John Mason, member of the Scottish Parliament across the pond, is not confidence-inspiring. Yeah, what was interesting is how uh, little interest anybody had in that story uh, when it emerged. Is it seven years ago now? Is it really seven years ago now? Uh, The fact is many Americans live lives of quiet despair, and um, eventually they take their own lives, even if they don't intend to take their own lives. They wind up face down in the meth lab, and uh, so we have falling uh, life expectancy among certain demographic groups in the United States. And what was interesting about that was that nobody was interested. Um, You know, we're told all the time that the reasons we have to be interested in transgender issues is because the rate of transgender suicide. In fact, Whatever condition they're suffering from, the suicide rate doesn't vary uh, between uh, their condition as a boy and then when they transition into a girl or vice versa. Uh, but we're, we're still expecting, oh, don't, don't you care about trans suicides? Well, here we have now, um, the, the, what, was, what, what was interesting to me about it was this, the symbolism of it. Uh, I think it's the literary device, if I recall these things correctly. <laughs> because um, in the days when I needed to, and I would be um, uh, straining to finish off something, I think, well, well, what could I put it? Oh, I know, internalization of the landscape. So the landscape in much of America is the towns are dying. And uh, so as a literary device, internalization of the landscape means that people start dying too. Now, we have something similar going on in Western civilization more broadly from what was happening in uh, rural America uh, and uh, post-industrial America uh, a few years ago. Our, Our entire civilization is dying. And so, again, in uh the literary device of internalization of the landscape, we see it in people dying. I, I, I can't understand that nobody's interested in this. Joe Biden, uh, just in his usual offhand, incompetent way, uh, for a guy whose name he couldn't remember, he was talking to uh, somebody, what's that company, uh, the chain of uh, stores that they sell quilt, quilt, quilting material, Joanne. Uh, It won't mean anything to uh, listeners outside the United States, but in the United States, uh, you'll see in your shopping malls a store called Joanne where you can buy quilting materials and and the like, you know, a bolt of cloth, a bolt of calico and that kind of thing. And um, the CFO uh, just died on Wednesday, I believe. And at any rate, uh, Biden found himself giving a speech to some fellas from Joanne. And so he said, yeah, pretty tough about your <laughs> your CFO dropping dead. Uh, that's actually the phrase he said. He said, yeah, uh, my sympathies to your family for the CFO dropping dead. 
Tough, tough break that, you know. Uh, that's the that's the way he put it. Joe Biden at his sensitive best. The guy was 56, died suddenly, died suddenly. There's a lot of dying suddenly going on. And it's weird the way we, a congressman, a congressman's daughter, 17 years old, died suddenly. She just didn't wake up. They went into her room and found it. Now, I, I, my colleague at uh, GB News, Anne Diamond, a bit of a lefty, I wouldn't agree with her on the politics, but the poor woman lost her baby. Uh, this is going back almost 30 years, I would believe, if I remember correctly, uh, to cot death or crib death, as I think. I don't think they say cot in America. I think it would be crib death. And... Uh, Anne was obviously distraught about it, and she launched a campaign to get babies, parents to make sure their babies are sleeping on their back so it doesn't happen. And she managed to reduce uh, crib death basically by 90%. Uh, I think there were 2,000 a year, and uh, she did this campaign back to sleep, about putting babies on their backs to sleep. And she reduced that 2,000 a year to a couple of hundred. And I think the Royal College of Pediatrics gave her uh, their gold medal or whatever you call it, the highest award they ever give. And the first time they've given it to a non-medical person. And I remember because, uh, you, you know, that I, I then had a conversation, some of you will have heard, with Irving Berlin's daughter about how on Christmas morning, the man who wrote White Christmas, Irving Berlin, on Christmas morning, he found his son, Irving Jr., dead of crib death, cot death, whatever you call it. And um, that was uh, fresh in my mind uh, when my own children uh, were born and when they were young. And I was fairly petrified of crib death, cot death. And as the years go by, so they're two, three, you sort of... So I, I was like going in and always checking. I was very worried about it. I can't imagine what it must... And then at a certain point, you think, OK, I'm past that. I cannot imagine. I don't need to worry about crib death, cot death anymore. And then uh, I can't imagine... Given that, so they're six, seven, eight, and they just go to sleep and you don't think anything of it. I can't imagine... What it must be like to open the door, to say, oh, come on, bang on your daughter's door, your teenage daughter, she's sleeping in, she's being all teenagey, and she's got to get up, get dressed, and go to school. And you walk in there, and you find she's died in her sleep. I can't imagine that. I can't, Im I, because in, I can't imagine I would be able to cope with the grief of that. And it's so weird the way... These things are reported now as if it's perfectly normal. Death, death, death. We live in dying societies. The Western world is dying. It's transitioning into something else. What that something else will be, we do not yet know. But we are not going to be the people who meet, who make the future. As Klaus Schwab says, the future. He says it at the World Economic Forum with the certainty and the ludicrously parodic Teutonic accent of one who knows that his megalomania is within reach. The future is made by us. And 
one sign of how uh, the future is being made elsewhere is that we are deemed to be irrelevant uh, so that we vote for things and they don't happen. You, you, you vote because you're concerned about immigration. You're concerned about the fact that all the jobs have gone to China. Uh, you're concerned about open borders. You vote for a wall on the border. The wall never happens. The border is more open. Six years after Americans voted for a wall, the border has never been more open. Uh, after six six years, seven years after Brexit, whatever it is, six years, uh, the European Court and the European Commission still decide everything that matters for Britain. So you were you, you, so that's the first sign you're irrelevant. You vote for things and you don't get them somehow. Far above you, all the people are jetting around and, and whatever you do with your piece of paper, sticking it into the ballot box in whatever little polling station, somehow the guys jetting around ensure that you don't get what you want. So first you get your irrelevance, then you get your death. Then you get Justin Bieber, 28 years old, looks fabulous. Not my star because, you know, I haven't, I haven't really dug any popular vocalists uh, for 70 years now, but I understand that other people feel differently. And uh, as it happens, <laughs> Justin Bieber has wound up with a disease that's more appropriate for all the fellas I like to hear singing. He's got an old man's... He's the hippest, youngest, grooviest thing ever... And he's got an old man's disease, and 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 mysteriously, and it's an, a disease that's associated with. Oh no, can't say that, just because it's in the British Medical Journal. Oh no, I don't know how that slipped through. Oh, uh, and his wife has got something. It's 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 in it's too symbolic, Kelton. It's too sad. Um. I'll add one other thing. I'm, I know I'm going a bit long with Kelton, but it, it makes me think this. I always, I always have said now, since 9-11, <clears throat> um, listen very carefully to what your enemies are saying. Because if they're just saying it up front, there's no reason to disbelieve them. So when they say they want to destroy you, uh, then you should take them at their word. You know, you can't actually say when people say if you're an Israeli and you're listening to the Iranians threatening to uh, erase you from the map, you don't have to go. It's not like 1970s Kremlinology. You don't have to go, hmm, decode that. Uh, what did he mean by that? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it's been ridiculous. Well, now we have people who are supposedly not our enemies, Western prime ministers, saying things like, uh, you know, like Boris Johnson, a supposedly conservative prime minister, pledging that there will be no more in there will be no new industrial um, internal combustion engines from 2030. That's eight years away. Well, I think I think it's worth taking Boris Johnson at his word. So now we have these oil companies that Boris Johnson said, and other prime ministers say we're going to put you out of business by 2030. And then we have uh, Biden <laughs> jetting off to beg. Who is it he's going to see this time? The Saudis? He'll be in Venezuela soon to beg to beg these people 
to provide more oil, just to get them through this awkward transition. So between putting the guys out of business and the period now when we haven't got enough and the uh, electric cars for them to drive around. And the point is, there's never going to be enough electric cars. If you pass your gas station, look at how long it takes to charge an electric car. What's going to happen if they do succeed in banning uh, new uh petrol-powered cars by 2030, it's not going to mean that you just have to switch to an electric car. You're going to have no cars at all because personal transportation will become the preserve of the very wealthy. Uh, you'll still remember. It'll, it'll, it'll be as if, uh, you know, once upon a time, everyone was flying around in private planes and then it's only John Kerry in the private plane. That's that's what they're planning for you. That's what they're planning for you. Hart says, Mark, I'm convinced that the Stalinist DOJ will, after a referral from their January the 6th committee comrades, indict Trump. Prosecution in a friendly, likely D.C. court will follow. Then the questions are, will Trump be convicted before the 2024 elections? Or will the strategy be to drag out the prosecution proceedings past November 2024? Either process likely eliminates a Trump run. Granted, conviction will be a bit harder, but maybe murder threats against Supreme Court justices will work this time. And after Trump is indicted, nothing more will be heard of John Durham and his sham investigations. If the shoes were reversed, that is, if an exclusive Republican committee in a majority Republican Congress were conducting investigations against a Democrat, the Democrat minority leadership would be filing injunctions, screaming to the media about the corrupt nature of the proceedings, orchestrating brilliant parliamentary manoeuvrings and invoking arcane congressional rules to stop the Republicans. Likely they would be successful. So why have Republican leadership been seemingly content to do nothing? Because McConnell, Graham, Romney, Cornyn, Collins et al., including Pence, fervently desire a Trump prosecution and conviction. As you've noted many times, there's very little to expect from the midterm Republican landslide. The evidence of this is that there is no interest at all among Republican senators to change their Senate leadership. Admittedly, McConnell is a fighter. He fights like a demon to change nothing. Yep, I wouldn't disagree with that. You know, the thinking is that uh, they were staging these hearings to distract from the fact that everything's crap. That everything, nothing, as I said last last time uh, or the week before when I was talking about uh, my poor cat's, uh, well, my, my poor cat was facing uh, sudden feline death syndrome and uh, we couldn't get, they had no staff at Tufts. They world-class institution could certainly have cured, uh, saved my cat. Uh, at, at like the uh, uh, somewhere else, I think, on the main coast. But neither place, nowhere, no American facility had the staff. The staff went off for COVID and never came back. So they couldn't do it. So uh, I wound up uh, having to take the cat to another country, to Montreal, Quebec, and get my beloved cat saved there. And that involved, you know, as I said, all kinds of shenanigans, to sneak myself across the northern border. Nothing works in America now. Nothing. 
You just don't know. Oh, oh, baby formula. Don't worry about it. You're getting used to the baby formula now. So now ladies products. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to go anywhere because I'd be tempted to do bad taste jokes about the Prince of Wales if I <laughs> get into that any more specifically. But there is literally nothing you can rely on being in the supermarket now other than empty shelves. If you want to make them an offer for they should have a sale of shelving because uh, they seem to have plenty of that. And you can see it now because there's nothing on it. Uh, but the point the point isn't that they're doing that they're arranging. So so the thinking is that the Democrats, if you listen to, you know, some of these American talk radio shows, you hear that the Democrats are doing this to distract people from uh, low uh, gas prices. And the like um, from high gas prices in order to prevent a Republican sweep in November. No, I think they price that in. And I think Hart is right uh, that they think they can actually get Trump. And you think about what this means if they pull it off, that they can actually now it's not it's not just the poll. It's not just, oh, you voted for Brexit. You're not going to get Brexit. You voted for a border wall, you're not going to get a border wall. Now they can actually determine uh, whether you're even permitted to vote for the candidates. I mean, they're doing it to some guy in uh, a gubernatorial candidate in the Republican primary. Uh, I think he's, he's a credible guy. He's at about 20 percent in the polls. And uh, he's been indicted, supposedly, for his part in January the 6th. So we're now doing this thing where, where, where uh, the Democrats are criminalizing their opposition. Again, all very banana republic, but they dress it up with a bit of Liz Cheney and some guy who compares it to, you know, Q -Cluck, the Q Klux Klan in his youth. And uh, a bit of, there's a bit of every time a reference uh, to parliamentary rule 106.4, whatever, you know, so it all seems on the up and up. It all seems legit. But you're you're right, Hart. They think they can actually get Trump. Uh, and, and you say and, and obviously if Trump is on trial in a D.C. court, there's going to be my usual joke, like the like the jury I'll be facing in the Michael Mann trial, now postponed yet again to January. Curse you, you filthy, rotten, stinking, corrupt crap hole where justice goes to die. Um, the 12 jurors will be 11 Democrats and one member of the revolutionary socialist Marxist-Leninist party. That's, that's your jury pool in D.C., so if he does go before a D.C. jury, when Hart says conviction will be a bit harder, I don't think so. I, I think he'll be I think they can find a jury that will convict him. They found for, for the Sussman thing with John Durham, <laughs> they found a jury uh, full of Hillary donors and a judge who'd worked on Obama's 2008 transition team. I mean, there is literally... Nothing you can, none, the judge didn't even, the judge doesn't know to recuse himself. So he's certainly not going to demand that uh, jurors who donated to Hillary in a case about Hillary uh, obstructing the result of the 2016. He's not going to demand that, you know, it's all, it's all corrupt.
And it's all to teach the lesson. It's all to teach the lesson. Um, Trump Trump behaved uh, foolishly through his first term. I've said this before, so I'm not so I'm not saying anything I haven't said before because I said it going right back to whatever it was, January 2017, where I, I think he should have scrapped the inauguration. He wasn't going to get anybody good. No celebrity you've ever heard of is going to sing at a Trump inauguration. And half the Democrats said they wasn't, weren't going to show up. So he should have held his inaugural. He doesn't have to hold the bloody inauguration in Washington. It's some pseudo-monarchical piece of crap that, frankly, uh, the American Republic doesn't do well and shouldn't be able to do well because that's not the point of the American Republic. So instead of having your boring, stupid, pompous, ponderous, ludicrous inaugural, he should have just held a brief business-like inaugural like Calvin Coolidge did by candlelight in his uh, family home in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. Uh, instead of doing that, uh, he, uh, uh, he he just took the... Uh, took the oath of office from his dad, who was a justice of the peace, and then got on with business. And Trump should have actually just gone to the border, uh, been sworn in by the chief justice. And if the chief justice didn't want to uh, fly to Del Rio, because you never know how John Roberts is going to go on these things, he should have just, Trump could have just used some Chief Justice of Texas, or he could use some any old district court judge is qualified to swear in the uh, president. Um, it's like when you need to get uh, something notarized or whatever. It's you know, it's not. It shouldn't. It doesn't need to be the top guy in the land. And he should have then. And it would have been better if it wasn't John Roberts. And he should have just taken the oath of office, and then reached down, picked up a brick, and laid the first brick in the Trump border wall. We are being taught, we're being taught that nothing, you, you are irrelevant. You are irrelevant. And if you, try to, if you try to go around the Democrat Lindsey Graham wing of the Republican Party, if you say, okay, uh, yeah, the Democrats, they seem nice, and the Lindsey Graham wing of this party seems pretty nice, but I wonder, have you got, I'm inclined to check the neither of the above box, is there anybody else around? That if you got, no, you don't get an anybody else. This is it. This is it. They're being very, I think they're serious about this because they need a complete repudiation of the Trump presidency. I mean, you forget how serious uh, they were about taking Trump out. And again, you don't know. It might just be about the money. The Biden family, the Biden crime syndicate, they're all doing deals in China. And then Trump suddenly uh, starts what they call a trade war with China. It wasn't actually a trade war with China. You can't really have a trade war with a country where all the traffic is one way. I mean, if they make everything and you make nothing, which is pretty much the situation we're in, it's hard to have a trade war. But nevertheless, he put China on the table. And the Chinese didn't like it. And a lot of their pals in the Democrat Party and in the broader establishment had reasons for bringing that to an end. And... Uh, it's correlation is not causation. We must always be mindful of that. 
But we had a president who rejected the China consensus of the Democrats and the Chamber of Commerce Republicans. The cons- he rejected the consensus of the last 30 years, Trump did. Uh, and that's very unusual. And so the next thing we know is the entire world is afflicted by a pandemic that shuts down, doesn't actually do a lot of devastation in terms of deaths, um, but it shuts down the entire economy and kills the Trump presidency. Correlation is not causation. You mustn't think that these people are just doing this deliberately. Kate Smythe says, Mark, it was interesting to hear your recent discussion with John O'Sullivan on GB News about the rise of cultural Marxism in the West following our Cold War victory. He pointed out that woke people are really engaged in a civil war. However, the authoritarianism of global elites, many of whom have been bought by the CCP, seems non-ideological. Destructive causes are either distractions, such as trans and critical race theory, or useful mechanisms to centralize wealth and control, like the climate emergency. For woke billionaires, the adjective is a means to an end. Liberals like C.J. Hopkins assert that global capitalism, including corporatism, is the main driver of the West's downfall in recent decades and the inevitable outcome of a system of values which prioritizes material wealth as the mark of individual success, whereby society becomes transactional. What are your thoughts? Should we blame Marxism or the marketplace, i.e. cheap Chinese crap? Uh, Kate always asks (laughs) very good questions, and I am inclined to agree. I think Kate might be the first one to have sort of said this, or certainly the first one uh, I noticed, that a lot of the woke stuff is just a distraction. If you notice, we we will once in a while if it seems particularly poignant or symbolic to me, but we don't do a lot about the, oh, you know, uh, they've uh, cancelled such and such from the curriculum at wherever, or they're tearing a statue down of this, or because we do nothing else. Like in Canada, Canada, my Canada is dying, dying very fast. Uh, every Everything that can be renamed is being renamed. It's not just statues of uh, Queen Victoria that are being torn down, but statues of the present monarch that are being torn down. And if we were to do these, we'd do nothing else. This, you know, uh, Piers Morgan over on, uh, what's that uh, station? Talk Radio, is that it? Uh, Piers Morgan has been given... Um, 50 million quid by Rupert Murdoch. Very generous of him. Uh, it's the he's, Rupert is paying more per viewer than anybody has done in the history of television. And uh, Piers Morgan uh, says, I'm cancelling the cancel culture. And he does these woke stories with steam. He's got this uh, steam coming out of his ears. He doesn't really have a problem with his. I think steam coming out of your ears is, uh, is that a sign of long COVID or the monkeypox? No, it's actually a special effect that they do where steam's coming out. But I'm inclined to agree with Kate that doing all this stuff is, is a massive distraction from what they're telling us 
that they're going to do to us. So, for example, Boris Johnson is saying that in 2030, he is bringing the age of private uh, motorized transportation to an end. Um, The uh, president of France, Monsieur Macron, is saying that the powers he took during COVID he now will exercise for non-virological reasons, banning outdoor gatherings and indeed indoor gatherings in facilities without air conditioning. Um, we're now having uh, the German government suggesting that masks are going to be a permanent feature of German life in the winter months. We're having the liars who told us that uh, you get 95% protection from COVID if you have two jabs. Uh, they're now saying the health minister of Canada just said the other, uh, the, um, the, the, two, the two jab vaccine doesn't work anymore. Oh, that's interesting to know. Why, why, why exactly did you say it worked so well a year and a half ago, but now suddenly it doesn't work? Ah, uh, can we have a look at uh, those uh, all those Pfizer uh, trials and the other? Oh, no, 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 no. We we don't want to release those till the next century. But some judge has said we have to release them. But he said because there are so many of these documents, we only have to release so many pages every month. So it'll all be staggered, and you'll never quite figure out anything that's going on. This is all more immediately important. We're actually losing our... And, and, and again, this the faux-butchness of people like Piers Morgan and his colleagues. You know, we're cancelling the cancel culture. Or even worse, the way they do it on these American talk radio shows, where they think that laugh... You know, can you believe what the university of no-name-whatever has done today? And we are, oh my God, this is nuts. Has the whole world gone nuts? I'm just, and that's been ineffective for 40 years now. 40 years. What's changed is that, um, is that these other factors, this rise of a global elite, which is like a 1 800 telephone, you know. If you ever want to need to call Amazon or what you call 1-800, where, where the hell is it ringing out? You don't know. Can you drive to their office? No, you can't. You don't know where they are. That's what these guys are like. Davos is perfect for that. Do you know, I'm not a, I wouldn't make any claims to be a genius. But one of the things that I had, um, I think it was about two years ago that I was writing my little inversion of The Prisoner of Windsor. Uh, And there's actually a character called Dr. Davos in there. And I started doing it uh, before, just as a little summer diversion, but before the whole lockdown thing had got going. Uh, But there is an element of... There is a actually a scene in there. It's chapter whatever. I don't know if you've heard it on Tales for Our Time. uh, About the medical... About the sedating... The, the medicating of global leaders by um, by a guy called Dr. Davos. And actually, that's pretty much the world we live in now, that at the behest of the people who meet 
at this elite little Swiss resort. I mean, what I love about this is that nobody's even trying here. You know, people used to pretend back in the democratic age, which is now over, uh, politicians used to pretend to be a man of the people. You know, you could see it in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, These guys who uh, were in Washington, D.C. all week in their suits and uh, patent leather shoes would then fly into Manchester. They'd meet the local Manchester person, change into the plaid shirt and jeans, and then go glad-handing their way across New Hampshire diners, pretending to be a man of the people. These people don't even pretend that. They meet in a luxury Swiss resort. Uh, just like in the Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And, and the villain has, just like Goldfig, has a sinister Teutonic accent. They're not even trying. They're not even pretending. And as I said, they're 1-800 people. They're from everywhere and nowhere. And they're, I, I apologize to non-North Americans. I forget what the code for a free what is it they call it in the uk a free phone number is but whatever it is it's a one you know this is it's not like you know dialing 603 for new hampshire or a 514 for montreal uh these guys have no area code they're from everywhere and nowhere and trump uh, at a certain level got rolled by them He never understood the scale of things. You know, if you approach life as a conspiracy thriller, you won't be disappointed, uh, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Let's have a a little bit of a a musical interlude so I can uh, check out uh, some of my other uh, sudden adult death syndrome uh, early warning signs. Um, Let's have a little bit of music just for a couple of minutes. Uh, You'll be interested in this. Uh, Jim Seals died a few days ago at the age of 79. He played with the Champs for a bit, not on their big hit record of Tequila, uh, but afterwards, after Tequila. Uh, And Jim Seals then became one half of a soft rock duo with Dash Crofts, Seals and Crofts, and they had a monster hit in 1972 with the song Summer Breeze. But that's not the one I'm going to play right now because if you're in North America, you can hear it in every 20, every 24 minutes on the Sirius XM Yacht Rock channel because like every other lousy Sirius XM channel, they just play the same eight records over and over. Uh, so you'll have heard their entire repertoire if your daily commute is any longer than uh, driving to an office directly across the street from your house. So no summer breeze. This one, oddly, you don't hear on Sirius XM or any other radio station these days. Warner Brothers warned Seals and Crofts not to record it, and Seals and Crofts reacted by making it the title song of the album, uh, telling the Warner's execs, uh, you only care about the money, man. We're trying to save lives. We don't care about the money. It was 1973. And uh, the wife of their recording engineer, a lady called Lana Bogan, had been profoundly disturbed by the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade. And she wrote a little poem addressing both the unborn baby 
and the mother en route to the abortion clinic. And Jim Seals was touched by the poem and he put it to music. Here is the late Jim Seals with Dash Crofts and the title song of their fourth album, Unborn Child. Oh, little baby, you'll never cry, nor will you hear a sweet love
Seals and Crofts, Unboard Child. I thought I'd just, instead of riding the fader on the out, I thought we'd just let it sit out there. Seals and Crofts, Unborn Child. It was released as a single and could get no higher than number 66 on the Billboard Hot 100. Abortion advocates boycotted the group's concerts. And in fact, Seals and Crofts got death threats. And in 1974, on Women's Equality Day, the National Organization for Women honored Seals and Crofts by bestowing on them their annual Keep Her In Her Place Award, even though the song's supposedly offensive words are written by a woman, Lana Bogan. But maybe uh, she's the woman Seals and Crofts are keeping in her place. They tied that year with Paul Anker, who was a co-winner with... uh, you're having my baby. Oh, what a lovely way of saying how much you love me. Uh, they were joint winners of the Keep Her In Her Place Award from the National Organization for Women. Jim Seals is dead. But he lived long enough to see a Supreme Court decision repealing Roe versus Wade, even if we have no idea whether that decision actually stands. And Paul Harmon has a question on that. Paul says, it seems odd to me that the Dobbs decision about the, quote, egregiously wrong from the start Roe versus Wade decision has not been delivered yet in its final form. Why do you think the court is waiting to hand it down? Well, that's because the court is as uh, political as anything. John Roberts' supposed preference for not making the court a political hot potato is itself a political decision. Uh, When we're told, Shannon Bream and I discussed this on Fox last year, Uh, that when uh, Shannon said, you know, John Roberts, John Roberts overriding priority is that the court shouldn't become political. Uh, But that is in itself political. His overriding priority should be to do justice, which is what judges are meant to do. But in America, when uh, the judges have become a super legislature, You can't afford being political because in America, in contrast to most countries, the big decisions, all same-sex marriage or whatever, are all made by judges. So we have a situation here that is odd. Clearly, there is the public pressure being applied to the members of this bench. For example, the guy round at Kavanaugh's... uh, pad the other night. He'd he'd flown from California with things that in theory one should not be able to take on a plane. Uh, But oddly enough, uh, he managed to arrive at Kavanaugh's house with a whole variety of means to kill Kavanaugh. He hadn't made up his mind yet, presumably, whether he was going to shoot him or stab him or whatever. Odd, odd. Uh, Odd too, and as I said, odd that uh, there's been no rational explanation as to um, as as to the plot, because the um, mainstream media do not regard it as a plot. They haven't covered it. No one, if you ask your average liberal friend. Hey, did you hear about the Supreme Court justice? Uh, some guy went round to murder him the other day. They won't have heard of it. 
The other thing that's odd about this, and again, we get so we get here to the difference between uh, what's happening to Peter Navarro, who's going to be ruined. I, I like Peter Navarro an awful lot, and I was touched by his naivety when he said he was looking for his book royalties to uh, to 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 save him from being ruined by being in litigation in the District of Columbia, because that's how I thought when the Mann versus Stein case started 10 years ago. And I've learned a little since then about book royalties uh, big enough to support a 10-year lawsuit. But if you look at the difference between Peter Navarro and this guy Sussman, who was uh, who, who testified in court that Hillary was directly responsible for getting the uh, Russia investigation going as a bit of oppo research that she then decided to plant with the deep state to give it the imprimatur of officialdom. And I've talked about the, the death of equality before the law. And so don't wave that constitution at me. Don't wave that constitution at me. Go and wave it over at the Mark Levin show or the Sean Hannity show or any of these shows where these dopes think it's uh, 1789 or whatever the hell it was. You know, uh, we have a situation. If you don't have, it doesn't matter if you've got a constitution, if you've got no equality before the law. Which is America in 2022. So, for example, we have something that's never happened before, which is this uh, this leak of a Supreme Court decision. The full text of it, and and just a leak out in public, not like uh, the, you know. Sometimes you get hints of how the judges are thinking on this. Now, it's a very exclusive club that gets to see that. And they all work for the government. They all have government emails. These judges, that's a branch of government, the Supreme Court. Uh, so they all have government. So there's the judges and then there's their clerks or clerks, as I'd have to say if I was talking about this on GB News. So there's these there's the judges and their clerks. It's a tight group. What was interesting to me that it was only four weeks, I think, after the the leak, after the leak, that the police, uh, the investigating police, then said, "Oh, by the way, uh, all you judges and clerks, uh, don't we're investigating this leak. Don't delete any of your emails now." Now I know that every time I'm. Uh, every time I'm sued, the first thing that happens is in the letter telling me I'm being sued from Carrie Katz's lawyer or whatever other asshole it is, says, uh, oh, you have to retain all your records. Don't delete any of your emails. Don't delete any of your texts. Uh, don't uh, throw out any of your mail. Uh, keep your telephone. You've got to do all that from the Carrie Katz's lawyer tells you that on the very first day here. Because it's a corrupt, dying republic that cannot even be bothered observing the forms of equality before the law. The police don't even do that until, uh, I think it was four weeks after the leak. 
So that's what you call a contaminated crime scene, you know? So it's like there's a big uh, fender bender uh, on the road and uh, you call the police and they show up to take evidence. Uh, Four weeks later, they start looping the yellow tape around the crime scene. That's what they've just done. That's what they, you know, the the way to look at it is what Neil Oliver was saying to me about the European court and the migrants in the UK. That uh, the easiest thing is to assume that what happens is what's meant to happen. So the fact that we don't know who leaked this document and the fact that we don't yet have the decision is meant to happen nothing is added nothing is as it appears i hate those kinds of movies i hate these things what, what the i know i am kaiser so say what, what, what the hell was that film about it was super cool 20 years ago one of those conspiracy th- thrillers where nothing is as it seems there's too many so you can't actually believe a scene it doesn't really matter if the actors are incredibly good because your assumption, or it's like one of these superhero movies where you're thinking it's all actually set in 2015, and then it turns out that that's all just some kind of fake alternate reality. Right now, our entire democratic system is a fake alternate reality, and the real reality is elsewhere. Uh, And that's why they're proposing to jab six-month-old babies in America who have no need of this jab and um, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, will suffer adverse consequences from it. JM says, Hi, Mark. I'm going to take a big risk and ask you a semi-sports-related question. Oh, good, good. We haven't had a cricket question yet today. Oh, rugby question. How about rugby fives? Love to see those butch Fijians. Oh, no, the big story out of the men's PGA. That's golf. Uh, or golf, as Cole Porter would say. While tearing off a game of golf, I may make a play for the caddy. Um, what am I doing here? The big story is how a group of golfers signed to play for a new golf association funded by Saudi Arabia. The news media and sports media are outraged and dumping on all the players for taking blood money. The media's main argument is for hating the Saudis uh, over the death of reporter Jamal Khashoggi. The media usually leaves out the Saudis' record on women's rights, gay rights, exportation of Wahhabism globally, etc. I don't believe much of the media ever condemned or properly or properly held Saudi Arabia responsible for 9-11. The sports and entertainment industry never seems to care about China's human rights record or role in the COVID pandemic. Why does the murder of one reporter trump every other transgression by Saudi Arabia. Um, If you Google around, JM, you can see uh, somewhere on the internet, or actually maybe even at Stein Online, uh, I, uh, on on Fox, I can't remember whether I was being interviewed or whether I was guest hosting Tucker. I'm pretty sure it was, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Tucker, but I pointed out that Khashoggi isn't wasn't really a journalist. He 
He was, in fact, a player in the politics of Saudi Arabia uh, who'd fallen out with the Saudi royal family. And his pieces were propaganda designed to advance uh, his particular political interests in Saudi Arabia. And for some reason, he managed to get the Washington Post to publish them. None of this is to say that he deserves to walk into a consulate and get chopped out and taken out of the consulate in pieces and buried in scrubland somewhere. Uh, That shouldn't be happening to anybody. And it certainly shouldn't be happening at the direction of the heir to the throne, as it uh, did in Saudi Arabia. As you know, I have a lot of differences with the heir to the uh, Canadian throne, uh, the Prince of Wales, but when, uh, as far as I know, he hasn't actually had anybody uh, chopped up in a Canadian consulate and buried in a municipal park on the other side of town. So... The only reason the, this is overriding for the media, because the media are like to be at the center of every story and they like to present themselves as heroes so that every this guy uh, was basically unknown to the entire American media. His columns just turned up in The Washington Post peddling this line. But everyone, you know how they are, they award themselves, uh, uh, they call themselves heroes, they give themselves awards for heroism far more than firemen or uh, policemen do. They they think of themselves as heroes, speaking truth to power. So when they see a bunch of golfers, I mean, I think one of these guys is actually getting $100 million to participate in this uh, new thing that the Saudis are running. The Saudis have bought up all kinds of stuff. No one complains about... If the Saudis are unfit to run a golf tournament, they're also unfit to fund Middle East studies programs at zillions of American and Western universities. They're also unfit uh, to be be running uh, mosque uh, programs that place imams in mosques and madrasas all over the Western world. The Gulf is the least of it. And in fact, the Saudis, you know, one of their thing, one of the ways you make yourself appear normal is to take over normal things. And what's more normal than golf? So, so there's going to be some big shot guy in Arab headdress handing a trophy out. And they, that normalizes the guy in the Arab headdress, makes the Saudis seem perfectly normal. Uh, they do this with other sports already. Horse racing, for example. Horse racing is uh, dominated by a lot of dodgy Middle Eastern money, I regret to say. So, so they're already involved in a lot of sports. Now, one of the things that Joe Biden said accidentally, I take it, during the campaign was he didn't want anything to do with the Saudis because they were a pariah state. And that's right. I don't want Wahhabism anywhere. I don't. I called for the overthrow of Saudi Arabia 20 years ago. And I got into a big ding dong with um, the, it's on the front of uh, it's on the front of America alone. Uh, some deeply sinister Saudi prince who was at uh, Georgetown with Bill Clinton 
uh, said the arrogance of Mark Stein knows no bounds. I got into it with all the Saudi princes uh, 20 years ago. But here's the thing. Here's what's pathetic. Joe Biden is, this is the pariah state. We certainly don't want to be playing golf with Saudi money. I mean, is there no, eh? can we not at least have that as a, a, a baseline of morality? No golf, no golf. Oh, sure, they can hollow out uh, every, uh, every uh, Middle East studies department in the Western world. So it's just Saudi propaganda. Oh, sure. They can appoint all the imams to the mosques in America and the rest of the West. But for God's sake, do we have to play golf? Joe Biden's going to Saudi Arabia to beg the Saudis for more oil. For more, this is a stupid. Oh, on the one, oh, the Saudis, yes, they're the pariahs. Wow, they chop people up and uh, and bury their bits in a municipal park. We can't play golf with them. If we play golf with them, the next thing you know, we'll be having a quilting bee with them. Oh, but on the other hand, if if the leader of the free world wants to go to Saudi Arabia and grovel before the guy who ordered up the chopping up in the Saudi consulate, that's all fine and dandy. You know, this comes back to the Kate Smythe point, the distractions, which I'm trying hard not to do at GB News. And I, under, I understand that, you know, when you watch American TV in particular, you, you but it's also true in Britain, it's certainly true in Canada, it's true uh, in Australia, it's particularly true in Ireland, if you've ever watched RTE and there's no reason why you should, it's true on the continent. You're getting the same half dozen distractions. And the, the question here is, OK, you know, I'm a, I'm a first principles guy. There are no first principles anymore. So I don't want to play golf with the Saudis and I don't want to get I don't want to drive around on Saudi oil. I'm completely principled on that. But these halfwits, you know, who say uh, have got nothing to say about Biden groveling to the Saudi king and his murderous son, because thanks to Biden, America is now dependent on Saudi oil again. I've got, uh, you know, that's the story, not, oh, have you seen these golfers? Why wouldn't he? I, I'm. Yeah, golf, golfing as the world burns. Uh, we are at the 18th hole, and we have uh, no chance of making it back to the clubhouse. Uh, Chris Hall writes, Hi Mark, more and more these days we seem to be inundated with hordes of people who belong to the church of self-righteous, easily offended, narcissistic internet experts. I was reminded of this while watching the 13th successful flight of a SpaceX Falcon 9 booster. A SpaceX Falcon 9 booster. I haven't had the ninth booster yet, Chris. Is is that what we're up to now? Um, I'm just joking. Anyway, the uh, 13th successful flight of a SpaceX Falcon 9 booster, a feat that only a very few years ago was solemn declared, solemnly declared as impossible by all the best experts. These days, almost every aspect of our lives 
is governed by self-appointed experts, such as those administering pandemic responses or those responsible for energy policy. I'm looking at you, Australia, the now unlucky country. <laughs> this, this is in reference to, uh, I think, Alexandra Marshall's uh, piece on uh, my show on Thursday, where... <laughs> Uh, the government of New South Wales can't even give her enough electricity now to keep open the connection to GB News. Um, I've worked in about a dozen different fields, says Chris Hall, of scientific research, and I never went into any of them figuring I was an expert. I published in all those fields and got reasonably competent in a few. But it doesn't take all that much research to figure out that many of our self-important elites haven't got a clue. Whatever happened to humility, was it the issuance of participation trophies. Without losers, you just can't have winners. Well, there are very few real experts in any field. There are a lot of just mediocrities who do well enough. But the innovators in any field are very few and far between. So this deference to expertise that we have uh, it's very selective apart from anything. It actually requires, a, you know, sh sh take something simple, uh, which I've done, uh, like shingling a roof or putting a window in, hanging a window. I've, I've done that. I haven't done it in a while. Would likely outsource it if I needed to now. But I know how to put uh, wood shingles on a gable. And I can do that. And uh, I'd rather somebody who was more expert in it than I did it. But I managed to do that. Now, we don't talk about uh, roof shingling experts. We don't talk about plumbing experts. We don't talk. We feel perfectly free to issue an opinion on uh, a guy's work if he comes around to shingle the house or put in a new bathroom. But there's a, uh, and that in itself is some, but we assume that uh, certain areas, such as climatology, for example, that was the first one where, oh, are you a climatologist? Uh, no, I'm not. I, uh, but I did win the Nobel Prize for Physics back before climatology was really a thing. Oh, well, if you're not a climatologist, uh, then uh, you don't, you shouldn't really uh, be weighing in on this thing. That's why, and now, that's what they always tell you. <laughs> you know, it's my, I, I put out a book that's got nothing by me in it, but is just quotes from whatever it is, 120 scientists on Michael Mann's work. So it's um, dozens and dozens of experts commenting on Michael Mann. So it's expert on expert action. Right. So it's like ordering the two girls special at your Vegas convention. OK, for the final night. It's expert on expert action. And uh, I still get people say, oh, have you read this uh, book? Uh, it, all it is is compiled and edited by me. No, I'm outside. He's not a he's not an expert. No, I'm not an expert in climatology, but I'm an expert in uh, compilation and editing. So I just took all these Direct quotations from... I mean, oh, no, 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 no. So we have this deference to experts in the climatological field, which if, if we are to believe what they want, these are people who are not expert in the economy. Uh, they are not 
expert in, uh, say, the development of free societies throughout history. They are not expert in anything except climatology. But they are going to make decisions that overrule all the politicians and everybody else in society. And we let that go. You know, the point about public policy is it's public policy. It's, it's it where you're balancing factors to decide what is best for society overall. Oh, no, 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 unless you're a climatologist. No, no, that's not how it works. There are competing interests. And it is the job of uh, the government... Uh, to take advice in all these fields and say, well, you know, if we were to implement the Green New Deal, everybody would be living in poverty and then they might rise up and kill us. So maybe we should just put that on hold and do it gradually. That's a political calculation, not a climatological one. What's been the tragedy is that the climatological model is now being applied starting, you know, February 2020, uh, was immediately transferred to public health. And that became a pilot program for listening to experts. The experts have ruined everything. They have irredeemably corrupted um, not just public health bureaucracies such as the CDC uh, and, uh, and the like and the Food and Drug Administration, but they've actually had a terrible corrupting effect all the way down to your county hospital and your general practitioner. I receive all these emails every day from people, well, you know, I've had a bad, uh, I had a terrible uh, result from the vaccines. Uh, about 10 days after the first shot, uh, I was just crippled up in pain and I was unable to work. But the hospital and the doctor don't want to hear about it because they're getting pressure from above, you know, there's no such thing as vaccine-related inj injuries. So basically, it's very hard to get a vaccine in. And this is sort of generally true. It's very hard to get anyone to sign off on your vaccine-related injury and, and unless you find a coroner who's 70 years old and doesn't really care anymore. He's got a couple of years and then he's, you know. So we've had immense corruption then we have Fauci testifying that, in fact, the pharmaceutical companies are allowed to uh, uh, give lots of money to the regulatory agencies, right? Right now, in, you look at this in your own situation. Uh, you're getting divorced and you go along to your county courthouse and you discover that your judge, uh, who's going to be the regulatory supervisor of your divorce, uh, the judge has been receiving uh, money from your soon-to-be ex-spouse. That judge would have to recuse himself. Uh, but uh, funnily enough, at the regulatory authority that decides that six-month-old infants are to be jabbed with an experimental drug, the people who made that drug are allowed to donate vast sums of money to that regulatory agency. By the way, Bill Gates does that all over the world, you know. So we have here 
We don't have experts here. We have corrupted experts. Fauci confirmed to um, uh, Rand Paul in Congress that he actually he doesn't know whether he's received money uh, from these people. He's he's not in a position to answer that question. He's entirely unaware of uh, where all this money... It's just that whenever he needs money, it seems to be there, but he has no idea where it comes from. So we have a completely corrupted... As I said, I managed to get this right just as a sort of a little bit of uh, subplot colour in uh, in The Prisoner of Windsor, this uh, totally corrupted uh, biomedical security state is a fact now, and we know nothing about it. We know nothing. Again, nobody reports it. The fact that Fauci, the fact that America is offshoring, it's doing a basically biosecurity rendition uh, in Wuhan uh, at the lab there, at a communist government-controlled lab, it's, uh, it's sluicing money through the Eco-Health Alliance by run by Peter Daszak, a British subject, now a U.S. citizen. None of this is known to anyone. The, here's, here's the thing uh, that we've got. There's many people who listen to me or read me. Certainly, if you read Kate Smythe's comments, you'll be aware of that the, the American government via Fauci has its fingerprints all over the COVID. So if you worry about, oh, COVID, are you, are you mad? We have to wear masks forever. Uh, we have to get jabbed forever. The COVID has killed everybody. It's killed granny. It's going to kill me any minute. That would be fine if you had the slightest bit of interest in how the COVID got out to kill your granny. But you can't claim to care about all the people the COVID's killing and not care that the U.S. government funded it in Wuhan. Then we have, you know, okay, Wuhan, COVID. I'm a bit bored with that now. This is, again, expertise, Chris. You know, for two years, what 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 is, when you say whatever happened to humility, the deference to expertise in itself becomes a kind of expertise. When people say, oh, I follow the science. What you're doing when you say, oh, yes, I follow the science. I don't follow people who aren't scientists, who aren't credentialed, who aren't expert. Uh, I follow the science. What that does is it appropriates a little bit of science, a little bit of the science you follow, then accrues to you and settles on your shoulder like an ermined cape. And that's how people use it, you know. So they say, oh, I, I follow the science. You know, Dr. Fauci is a hero. I've got a thank you, Dr. Fauci lawn sign just to show how much I follow the science. I feel terrible for him that he's been jabbed four times and he's come down with the COVID. Uh, and normally that would suggest to me that the vaccine is total crap and doesn't work. But because I follow the science... I know that Dr. Fauci is right when he says he'd be in much worse shape if he hadn't had his four jabs. And that's probably all the more reason why I should just be tootling off right now to get my fifth. So you have this when you talk about humility, Chris, 
The follow the science mantra is a way of making you a sort of, you know, like what do they call it with the gays and lesbians and the trans and the bi's and all the rest of it? Allies, allies. Yes, I'm not I'm not a practicing homosexual myself, but I'm an ally. So I'm uh, fairly up to speed on the whole business. And that's what it is with follow the science. It makes you an ally. So it raises your status. I'm a I'm not yes, I'm not a scientist myself. I certainly but I do follow the science. I followed it for two years. Uh, so I would be tweeting mocking mocking responses to people who didn't follow the science uh, because I was, by following the science, I became a sort of, uh, well, not actually a scientist, but I did become a sort of honorary virologist in a way for two years. Um, and then, uh, then some war broke out in some country on the, uh, I think it's at the far end of, over on the far end of Europe, you know, where you, you vaguely know where France is and then Italy, of course, that hangs down. So you know where that is. And then the Scandinavian ones are always the bit up at the top uh, and uh, then there's Austria and Switzerland somewhere in the middle or is it Switzerland and Austria I can't really decide and who cares uh, and then there's uh, what is it Hungary and then it all gets a bit blurry but somewhere over at that far end uh, there's a war going on um, and so I now follow the uh, follow the uh, Ukrainian. I followed the scientists for a while and now follow the experts on this war, wherever it is, because I've been to Europe. I haven't been to that precise bit of Europe where they're having all the war. Uh, but I was on the west coast of Ireland, which, let's face it, is pretty clear. It's about as uh, near as uh, my office is from my wife's favourite Mal. Uh, so I'll just put the Ukrainian flag on my Twitter feed, and then I, it will show that um, you know, not just an honorary virologist, but an honorary. You know, this is there's no. This is the madness the world has made. But. We are in a world, we, we talk about trivia, we talk about trivia, and uh, we get distracted, and we forget that these guys are dismantling our world, even as we speak. Uh, George Pereira, and it's serious, we're running out of time. If you look at how much has happened in the last two years... Uh, Justin Trudeau, you thought, oh, God, Justin, Justin Trudeau, I'm a prisoner here in Canada. I can't, if I'm not vaccinated, I can't get out of the bloody country. Um, oh, God, I need, I've got to, I've got to go. My, uh, my mum's dying and the, the hospital says she's only got about uh, two weeks left. So maybe I can just get the two shots in. Uh, oh, no, Justin's just changed it. The two shot thing doesn't work anymore. You're going to have to get more shots. They've killed it all. Killed freedom of speech. They're killing freedom of speech. They're killing freedom of movement. They've done significant damage to freedom of religion. There's not going to be a lot left. This is a war. This is a war. If you've got, you know, people say, oh, well, fortunately, I won't live to see it. Well, unless you're a 114-year-old uh, with a bad dose of the monkeypox, you are going to live to see it. This is a battle now. To save free societies. It's bigger than the U.S. Constitution. That argument, we can have that. Uh, there's been a little bit of that uh, in the comments section. Uh, you know, a uh, constitutional republic is way better than a constitutional monarchy. We don't actually, in America and Canada, you don't have either at the moment. Either. So that's an argument. That's a doctrinal dispute 
that, uh, that we will have within the good guys when the good guys have won. But right now, the entire Western world is dying. Super, the, the acceleration of decline these last two years is uh, extraordinary. George Pereira says, we'll just take one more. George, I've gone on a bit too long. I'm terribly sorry. But the questions have been very good this week. Um, Mark, I've got to comment on normal stuff just to keep my blood pressure down. Oh, you have my sympathies there, George. Um, uh, my wife and I have been emptying our attic of hundreds of books and whatnot in preparation of remodeling. And what to my wondering eyes did appear but an unread copy of Rupert of Hensel. I started in right away. This is Anthony Hope's sequel uh, to The Prisoner of Zender, published a couple of years later. It doesn't have the magnificent conceit of The Prisoner of Zender, but even halfway through, it is a crackerjack adventure. Brave, honourable men, daring all for the Queen they love. It's just a great, well-written story. It would make a great movie. I think it has been filmed. It would make a great tale for our time. I wonder what its inversion would be like. The thing about this, George, is I considered reading the, the reading Rupert of Hensow, but it lacks two uh, things. Uh, actually, the one thing it lacks is this. The, the great thing about The Prisoner of Zender is that it's narrated by the English fellow. So it's narrated by uh, Rudolf Rassendil. And so it's narrated by an Englishman with dash and verve who keeps a light touch going because he looks on it as just a little bit of a, a, a joke, you know. So it's the, the great, the kind of thrillers I like. It's an ordinary man placed in an extraordinary situation and uh, forced to ride, rise to the occasion. And it's greatly enhanced by Rudolf Rassendil's narration, which is one reason why when I did my little inversion of that story, The Prisoner of Windsor, I the, the first decision you make is, OK, we're going to keep... We're, we're going to have the guy narrating it because that's that's what gives it the character and flavor that I like about The Prisoner's Ender, that it's it's actually a very serious book about duty, but it's presented as a as a lark, as a jeu d'esprit. Now, you don't have that in Rupert of Hensau, which is much more tragic, but suffers from the fact that it's narrated not by uh, Rudolf, uh, but by Fritz von Thalenheim, who, frankly, is a bit of a dull stiff. And that's the big defect of Rupert of Hensau. And it's actually the main reason. It's a much more somber thing than uh, Prisoner's Ender. And actually, probably the heart of Princess Osra would be the one that I'd probably do if I were going to do... Uh, if I were going to do another of Anthony Hope's uh, Ruritanian books. Oh, what am I doing? I see I've talked for almost 90 minutes. We cannot have that. We, uh, so let's have a bit of music to close uh, because I'm already getting complaints. You know, come on, Stein, you can't talk about seals and crofts and not play Summer Breeze. You play the obscure title track of their fourth album that nobody plays on any of these ghastly serious XM radio stations with only eight records on the playlist. Um, that's, that's just perverse of you. Summer Breeze! 
Okay, message received. Okay, okay. This song is basically all atmosphere, but that's important. And if you get it right, bingo! As Peter Navarro likes to say, we were talking about Peter a few minutes ago. When I was a teenage disc jockey, the hook of this song fascinated me. And come summer, round about this time of year, I would always play it on my show, especially to start a summer three-day holiday weekend. And the lines that fascinated were... Uh, the hook of the song, there isn't really much else. Summer breeze makes me feel fine, blowing through the jasmine in my mind. It's not a proper rhyme, fine mind. And that bothered me even as a teenager, but I love the image. Um, why does the guy have jasmine in his mind? Is it a psychedelic thing? No, it turns out it's just rather ordinary. Jasmine blooms in the summer. And the guy is thinking of a summer breeze blowing through jasmine and the image of the breeze through the jasmine arises in his mind. But because these fellas played tequila with the champs every night for years on end and tequila has no lyrics except tequila, uh, he's not a very, they're not very polished songwriters. So instead of saying the thought of summer breeze blowing through jasmine makes me feel fine, um, they've wound up separating the breeze and the jasmine. There's a huge, wide New Jersey tire turnpike between the breeze and the jasmine and somehow left the impression that there's jasmine blooming in his head entirely independently. But as I said, the trick of the thing is the atmosphere and this surely has it. A much-recorded song, uh, the Isley Brothers, Johnny Mathis, Ray Conniff, the main ingredient, always used to like them, the Brady Bunch. But when I clear out the jasmine in my mind, I always hear the original, Seals and Crofts. See the curtains hanging in the window in the evening on a Friday night. Little light is shining through the window Let's me know everything's alright Summer breeze Makes me feel fine Blowing through the jasmine in my mind Summer breeze Makes me feel fine Blowing through the jasmine in my mind The paper laying on the sidewalk A little music from the house next door So I walk on up to the doorstep Through the screen and across the floor Summer breeze makes me feel fine Blowing through the jasmine in my Sweet 
days of summer, the jasmine's in bloom. July is dressed up and playing her tune, and I come home from a hard day's work, and you're waiting there. I care, and no one. See the smile waiting in the kitchen, food cooking on the plates for two. Feel the arms that reach out to hold me in the evening when the day is through. Summer breeze makes me feel fine, blowing through the jasmine in my mind. Summer breeze makes me feel fine, blowing through the jasmine in my mind. Summer breeze makes me feel fine, blowing through the jasmine in my mind. Seals and Crofts singing a song written by Seals and Crofts. Rest in peace, Jim Seals. I hope wherever you are right now, the summer breeze is blowing through the jasmine in your soul. Uh, summer breeze makes me feel whole, blowing through the jasmine in my soul. We shall have Rick McGuinness. With his Saturday movie date, uh, we've got the 100 Years Ago show. We've got more weekend attractions right here at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free, stay breezy. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.